Hello and welcome to The Art of Selling Wine. This is the podcast for wine professionals and for professional wine nerds. And in today's episode, I talk to Philippe Castasia. He is owner of several classified uh, chateaus in Bordeaux and also president of the Union of the Grand Cru Bordeaux, UGCB. And we talk about the mysterium of the classified growth wines and the system that makes selling them so very unique. Welcome to The Art of Selling Wine. In this podcast, we explore the foundation of business success in the wine industry. And we also take a look at global game changers, such as changing climatic conditions, changing customer behavior and demands emerging and fading distribution channels, and many topics alike that affect winemakers everywhere. My goal is to collect regional answers and strategies and spread the ideas worldwide. My name is Diego. I'm a wine marketing consultant specialized in the strategic brand positioning of small and medium-sized family wineries. I have a background as trained winemaker in Rheingau area, Germany, and a degree in international wine business. This podcast is my contribution to the wine sector that I love so much. Enjoy it in the vineyards or in the cellar or while traveling as winemaker or sommelier. And don't hesitate to contact me. You are listening to The Art of Selling Wine, the podcast for wine professionals. This episode is presented to you by WinePlus. WinePlus is a German-based platform for wine professionals from all around the world. It is written W-E-I-N dot plus, W-E-I-N dot plus. And all the episodes of The Art of Selling Wine and my German podcast, Wein Verkauft, are available in early access for the WinePlus members. It's a free membership, so you don't have to pay and you get two weeks early access to any episode. The Bordeaux series is also powered by Amorim Kork. Amorim Kork is partner of my German podcast and therefore they enabled me to do this whole endeavor in Bordeaux. And if you are currently looking for a new supplier of high quality cork, I recommend taking a look at Amorim Kork. And if you understand German, I also provide a nice German episode. I think it's number 62 with Gerd Reis. He's the CEO of the Northern European division of Amorim Kork, and we talk about the renaissance of cork and the future of closing, closing systems for wine bottles. This whole series, the Bordeaux series, was made possible by a German company called Euramobil, Euramobile, you would pronounce it in English. They produce high quality mobile homes and they provided me, meaning my wife and me, with a mobile home just for the trip to Bordeaux. And if you are interested in these kinds of things, I highly recommend going to The Art of Selling Wine episodes four, maybe five, and taking a look at our travel diary. In that episode, we talk about all the funny things we <laughs> got to see and uh, got to do in Bordeaux and all the accidents we had. And also, I give you a brief overview about the mobile home we were in and how living and working in a mobile home actually turned out to be. Additional partner for the French series is vitisphere.com. Whenever you want to find out about what's going on in French wine business, I highly recommend visiting Vitisphere. They are very helpful to our industry in France. The Bordeaux episodes were also supported by Bordeaux.com. It's the website of the Bordeaux Wine Growers Association, CIVB, and they supported me with giving me access to many, many, many of the interview partners that you are going to get to know in the following episodes. Here I am with uh, Philippe Casteja, and he is the president of the Grand Cru, Grand Cru Classé Association. Yeah. 1855 Grand Cru Classé. 1855 Grand Cru Classé. And uh, today we will explore what this means, because I'm very sure many people have heard about it, as I have, but <clears throat> we always get the outside perspective, and uh, I'm trying to get an insider perspective today. But And we want to discover what Monsieur Casseja has also been doing and is doing in the wine business. But uh, the first question I want to ask you, and this comes to mind when you look at 
the image of Bordeaux and especially of the Cru Classé, what role does ceremonial and cel celebration play in selling wine? Could you could you bring again your question? To, yes, in order just to 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 help me to get it yes. right. <laughs> I will. Um, so the podcast I'm doing is about the art of selling wine, okay, l'art du monde du vin. And uh, so I I travel around and I see very different styles of mm -hmm. selling mm -hmm. wine. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to Bordeaux, uh, especially to the expensive Bordeaux wines, to the mm -hmm. fine wine market, I see that there's a lot of ceremonial going on around the wine mm. and also a lot of celebration. And um, I would like to, to understand your perspective on what role this plays and how this developed. Yeah, well, in fact, uh, let's say that um, speaking of the classified growth, uh, there are different ways of uh, selling it or bringing it to, to the market. The grower, uh, when he wants to uh, sell his wine, he uh, he is going through a, a broker and then he distributes his wine uh, to the uh, border wine shippers. For the classified growth, let's say 90 to 95% of the volume produced by the classified growth is sold by the wine merchants. Uh, this is, um, I would say, historical. Uh, and um, um, then after that, there are two different ways of selling wine when you've produced it. It's either... Uh, first time will be en primeur, we say, that is to say forward, if you prefer, in in uh, in English. Uh, en primeur, EP, uh, this is to say uh, uh, before the wine has been uh, bottled, and the second way is to sell it when it's bottled. Uh, en primeur, uh, in fact, um, you are selling your wine Uh, eight months, roughly, after uh, the, uh, the the crop. That is to say, you're making your crop end of September, early October, and um, you uh, you have to uh, and uh, you sell. You put your wines on the market uh, around uh, end of April, early May. Uh, so that is to say, eight months after. So. Um, Uh, this was invented at a time when, in fact, the grower were a bit short of money, and um, it was a good way of uh, selling the wine and getting some cash for the grower. It was helping them uh, for uh, to uh, to uh, carry the wines up to the bottling time. Mm -hmm. Second moment to sell the wine is when the wine is bottled. And uh, then the wines are sold uh, to the to the market. The border grower they don't sell to the consumer. They go through uh, the wine merchants, and they can have ten uh, uh, wine merchants or thirty uh, or forty or fifty, whoever. I think there are three hundred wine merchants in Bordeaux, so you have a, a choice. But of course. Not all of them are specialized in classified growth, are able to distribute uh, well classified growth. Okay, so this is basically similar to the future market on It is exchange. a bit like a future market. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's selling futures. That is to say, we sell a wine that exists because you can taste it, but it is not... You cannot have it because it's still in, in bulk and it will be available only a year or a year and a half after the moment you have concluded uh, or bought the wine. Mm -hmm. And uh, so basically, if I as the negociant buy the wine, I can decide which bottle size it will then, be? Then, then, yes, when you buy it as it is in bulk, you will uh, ask the estate to bottle it in Magnum, Jeroboam's bottles, whatever. Uh, 
if the chateau doesn't want to make, uh, for example, half bottles, it will be known before before the sale that you won't be doing any uh, bottles mm -hmm. and the demand in let's say unusual bottle size uh, how has it changed in the last years is there well, it's like developing the uh, the large sizes are developing more than i would say than 20 years ago uh, this is because uh, of uh, different ways of uh, of uh, of tasting wines and uh, Uh, bigger groups and so on. Mm. Yeah, and this is where it comes to what I have in mind about this ceremonial and celebration. If you see how the real big bottles they are mm. turned mm. in these, uh, I don't know how they are called the the uh, <laughs> machines they use to pour mm. the wine. Yeah, and uh, so do you think this is um, this this celebration that develops around the. Uh, expensive wines do you think this is uh, a trend do you think this is a developing thing or is it also old as the wine and the bottle sizes well the, the, these large bottles always existed um, the uh, way of uh, the new way of uh, pouring it or pouring them is uh, more or less different Uh, these large bottles uh, have been uh, brought in fashion also by new new consumers, young people, uh, new uh, new areas of uh, of uh, drinking wine. That is, to say, for example, United States and so on. But I would say it's more the younger generation, which is uh, which likes uh, a bit that kind of uh, uh, moment of a special moment. Can you say when the big bottles, like the really big bottles, uh, came on vogue and why? I would say um, roughly 10 years, 10, 15, 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago. Time flies. But they exist longer. Oh, yeah, of course. They always existed What? because the estates always made uh, uh, large bottles. But... I mean, they are not very easy to handle. They're not very easy to travel. Was it a transportation uh, need originally to have these large, large bottles? Oh, they are. They are. Them? They they are shipped in uh, wooden cases, large wooden cases, uh, individual uh, wooden cases. I mean, somebody must have had the idea. Okay, I need a 12 liter bottle. <laughs> so yeah, well, no. In fact, it's nine liters, which is equivalent yes. to one case. And then you jump to 18. Ah, uh, directly to 18. Okay, so, yeah, I'm, uh, I never had one of these large, large bottles. I And you know, it's <laughs> saw them the, on the, chateaus, the chateaus were doing those because wine ages slower. The bigger the bottle is, sure. the slower the wine ages. So, uh, for the chateaus to have these big bottles was interesting because the wines, the wines were showing younger easily. Ah. Uh. Okay, I understand. So this is uh, one part of my question answered. And uh, now let's let's uh, for the people who don't know you, let's uh, briefly start and uh, talk about how you become uh, how a person becomes president president of this association. What mm. what qualifies uh, for being president? I don't president? know. I don't know. I still wonder what qualifies. Uh, when I have, you were speaking of CIVB, I've been a president of the CIVB in the, uh, in the past. Uh, I'm a grower and I'm also a shipper. So I'm a wine merchant. So I, I do both, both jobs. Uh, maybe it's uh, because I happen to know um, the two sides of the coin that makes me uh, more legible. For sure that is. And uh, what is your role as president? Is it more representative? Or? No, it's uh, mostly a uh, it's mostly a job of uh, protection um, uh, of the brands of the uh, uh, of all what is um, the 1855 classification. It's mostly that, and of course there are a few moments, but. Uh, Which are every year or every two year, we have a big, uh, a big uh, festivity uh, uh, for the uh, for the journalist. But uh, the last um, the last two years, we've been uh, 
we've been <laughs> forbidden to do anything. So, so we'll see later. Yeah, sure. And uh, so, uh, as I learned, your family is quite engaged in the wine business for some time. And uh, mm -hmm. I even found a, a street, I think, named yeah. after your family. So, uh, what what happens to have a street named after your family? Well, it's one of my uh, uh, ancestors who was a Lord Mayor of Bordeaux. And uh, I think he did a number of things in the, for the city, so they gave him a street. <laughs> That's nice to have. Um, uh, so, uh, please give us an overview about uh, your connection to the wine business. Like, uh, where are you involved? What? Uh, well, we, we are. We are as growers. We are. We own two uh, 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 1855 classified growers, which are Bataille and Lynch Musas. Uh, then, in Medoc, we have also other estates like Beausite in Saint Estèphe, Auberge Montpellou in Pauillac, Omadrac in Omedoc. Then we have in Saint-Emilion uh, Chateau Trottevieille, which is the first growth. And in Pomerol, we have uh, Domaine de l'Église, which is the center of Pomerol, and La Croix du Casse. Uh, globally, we have uh, we control over 250 hectares of vines. And uh, we also have uh, three uh, uh, wine shipping companies. Uh, and uh, two e-commerce company. That is quite a lot. And uh, additionally, on top, you are president of this association. Um, I, I personally wonder, how do you manage your time? I, I'm, I'm running against the clock. <laughs> Have you ever won? Never. <laughs> Never. And uh, how do you prioritize? Like, do you have a system that works for you? Well, in fact, uh, well, I, I have a diary and um, uh, I plan what I'm going to do. Sometimes it doesn't work the way I think or I thought, but um, most of the time it, uh, it works. Yeah, I hope so. And uh, I'm sure. Uh, do you consider yourself A winemaker, a merchant, a manager of wine? What, what is your self-identity with all those different roles? Depends uh, what, you, what you ask. I'm a, I am a uh, winemaker. I grow vines. Uh, and I'm a wine merchant, uh, being the chairman of three companies. And um, I am interested in e-commerce because we have two companies in that field. So, um, like uh, all bosses, I'm doing um, different jobs. Yeah, the jack of all trades. Uh, as as uh, leader of companies, you always have to be. So, uh, I'm interested in this uh, e-commerce. Is it all also about wine or uh, something different? E-commerce is wine. Uh, we have one company called La Grande Cave which uh, specializes in, uh, in uh, only Bordeaux wines. And we have a, a an, a, another company called uh, Un Jour Un Vin, One Day One Wine, which is a, um, another type of e-commerce, uh, but that sells uh, wines and also some spirits. Uh, uh, it, um, where you have... Uh, where you have a sort of uh, basket where you add wines and at the end you ship all. Mm -hmm. So you And you have a different offer more or less every day. Is, is it like a club where you can No, join? no. Uh, yes, you have to, to, uh, to get in. It's free, but you have to get in to, to get the offers. Okay, I understand. Yeah, it's very interesting to me because uh, as I... Uh, don't have family background from wine. Uh, I started as winemaker and studied wine business, but I uh, have no wine winery. So uh, people like me, we have to find our way. And yeah. I, I managed to end up in uh, German e-commerce uh, via Winzer, which is uh, acquired by the Havesco Group. And yeah. uh, so I'm, I'm quite uh, interested in this topic. As yeah, but uh, Havesco are customers of us. <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine that. Um, so... Uh, As you started talking about the customers, um, where, oh, sorry, where or who is 
The Market for Cruclassé maintenant. Uh, the Market for Cruclassé, it's like uh, for all uh, uh, on top products, whatever the uh, category is, the the market is is worldwide. In the old days, the market was uh, in a few sp spots. I would say in France, in Belgium, in the UK, northern Germany. Uh, so very uh, Europe-centered. Hamburg, uh, Bremen, and then the Scandinavian cities, a bit in Berlin, of course, and some in Munich. But uh, Switzerland has always been also a market. But this was mostly European and Northern European. Uh, then over the last uh, 50 years, uh, the market has uh, broadened and... Um, Largely, uh, first was I would say uh, uh, United States, which after the war, because before the war there has been a period where you had the prohibition, so there was not nothing sold. So after the war, it was really reopened, and then that was the first very large market with a high uh, buying power that uh, that came. That was followed, of course, by Japan later on. Uh, in the meantime, as Japan, in fact, uh, Germany after the war, after recovering from the war, let's say in the 50s, started again and has been a fairly large market also for quality wines. And um, then after, you know, it carried on, developed like this with the... Uh, Quite a lot of in Asia and uh, in the 90s started China, which also gave a uh, fairly uh, fairly large uh, market. In the meantime, we have had uh, Russia that reopened after the uh, the uh, fall of the wall, and um, so Russia. Russia was traditionally a fairly large market for Bordeaux wines. And we carried on. So you see, from a market which was uh, maybe uh, 150 million people or 200 million people, we are looking at a market which is uh, 300 million in the United States, let's say uh, uh, five or 600 million people in, in China. Japan is 100 million. So... The market is broken, but this is not only for Bordeaux wines. It is also yeah, for it, Burgundy th wines. Th this it's is the same that. for Champagne. It's the same for some German wines. I mean, the quality wines market has broken. The world has opened. It was the same for selling uh, some high fashion goods, which were only sold in Europe and which is in, nowadays are sold all over the world. Mm. But I would highly doubt that uh, 600 million people in China uh, are customers for Cru Classé. So they the, the market not, is they a small not, niche. But there is, there, is, there is a market for that. Yeah, sure. And, uh, but but let's, uh, let's face you, you imagine, you imagine uh, China like a European. You must understand that uh, the way of consuming of the Chinese is not exactly like us. And of course, they have plenty of other things to consume. So maybe the, this guy is going, these people are going to buy uh, three bottles in a year. But they know, they know the uh, border wines, they know what they are, they know the taste, and some try to understand and to develop a taste on that. So you say that uh, the Chinese, I, I have absolutely no experience. You have a few Chinese. Yeah. So it's like, say, in Japan, in Japan it's the same, and the United States is also the same, and in Germany it's the same. In fact, in all the world, you have niche people who are wine buffs, yes. wine <laughs> lovers. Those guys, they are buying top wines from around the world. Just a short interruption because I want to talk directly to you who are listening to this podcast. 
I'm Diego, I'm the host of this podcast, obviously. What you maybe do not know is that I'm also active as wine marketing consultant for wineries and I'm specialized in small and medium-sized family wineries that try to figure out their strategic positioning. This often occurs when the winery faces a generational change, so it's ahead of them or they just did it, and the new owners try to find their identity and the winery's identity. The other scenario where my help is often asked is when wineries change their market. So, for example, from producing bulk wine to bottling wine. Strategic positioning, I can explain this best on my own podcast. So there are many of wine podcasts mostly talking about food pairing and stuff. There's one podcast for wine professionals talking about how to make money in the wine industry. This is mine and this is very special. So this leads to platforms like Wine Plus. It's 230,000 members. 30,000 of them are professionals working together with me. Or Vitisphere, the main French medium for wine growing, working together with me. Or Ives, the worldwide corporation of wine research institutes, working together with me because of my strategic positioning. But this is also possible for wineries. But when I look around, most of the wineries I see, they have a me too positioning, meaning look at me, I also do organic wine, or I also do vegan wine, or I also have a vineyard in this area, or I also produce orange wine, or what have you. So this is positioning, but it's not good. Let me tell you the story of one of my customers. It's Terra Preta Weingut. Huppert, meaning Terra Preta Winery Huppert. And so together we positioned them as the only winery that has its brand centered around the use of Terra Preta. Why is this important? Because if you check this stuff out, it has a huge community on YouTube. You can buy it in grocery stores. Uh, television channels are reporting about it. Joe Rogan podcast is reporting about it. And no winemaker got the idea to use it as his strategic positioning. So instead of saying, yeah, I'm organic winery Huppert, we can say I'm Terra Preta winery Huppert. This is good strategic positioning. And I consulted them and I helped them to change their whole brand around this new identity. And the effect of it is that they now can sell their wine where no other winery is selling because they are part of the Terra Preta community from now on. And if you want to learn how strategic positioning can help you grow your business and stabilize your income, do not hesitate to contact me. I do my consulting locally because I travel the wine world a lot, but also online via Zoom or video conferences. And so just contact me and we can talk about what is possible. But outside those wine bars, you also have people like wine, but in a, in, a, in a not so regular way, not so regularly. So these also are a market. Hmm. How much of the sales uh, per year would you uh, consider to be for consumption and how much of it for investment purposes? Investment is a side business. If you take the, the business of, uh, of uh, of the classified growth, it's a side business because uh, if it if it was only if it was only a uh, investment business, then no one would be drinking it. So the market would have collapsed already. Yeah. For long. I've uh, had a very interesting to have to have a, an investment possibility means that there is a demand and there is a test destruction of the product to have a destruction of the product speaking of wine it means it has to be drunk yeah i had i had a very uh, interesting uh, conversation about this topic with uh, monsieur francois Odouze. i don't know if you mm -hmm. know him mm -hmm. and uh, we also we talked about this a lot because uh, he's <laughs> very strong uh, for consumption of those wines and he says uh, he doesn't want to invest he does he wants to consume and uh, so uh, he looks at this whole investment market with uh, quite a smile and uh, says, okay, it's interesting if you want to do it to finance your own consumption. But if you do this without consumption, it's not, not what he uh, believes uh, what wine should be done. Um, but yeah, so 
I don't want to go into this uh, direction now. I would I would like to understand a bit more about um, how the Cru Classé uh, came into existence. So um, I have read the the letter of the courtiers that is uh, printed on on the brochure. Um, but uh, maybe you can briefly tell uh, what happened in 1855 because it seems 18, to be 1855 uh, is the world exhibition. Uh, in those days, the world. Uh, we are getting in the new world, in the uh, new uh, uh, new um, how could we say developed uh, industrial world. And um, 1850 is the uh, world exhibition of London, uh, where the British uh, uh, built um, uh, what's the name a very special uh, thing anyway and showed all what they had and uh, 1855 Napoleon III wanted to do the same in Paris so it's the world exhibition of Paris where of course uh, the French had to show also what they have best so it was the the trains it was the of course all the uh, all the colonies all all what was uh, new and uh, uh, inventions and so on. So uh, also because it's France and uh, France is known for its agriculture, uh, it was decided to uh, to show the best uh, agricultural products from France. So they decided to uh, the the uh, the emperor asked to to have the best wines and so they asked the the uh, uh, Champagne, Burgundy, and Bordeaux to ship to uh, Paris their best wines. So, uh, so did the uh, the uh, to present whatever. So did Champagne, Burgundy, and the Bordeaux people. They said, well, yeah, instead of sell, sending all those wines like these, why not giving a sort of uh, organization to these wines in order that the people will understand who is what and what are the rankings of those wines, not all together. So they uh, said, we're going to make a classification, and they made a classification, which was made uh, in uh, a fortnight. And uh, But it was not um, badly made because it still exists. It was based on 100 to 150 years of uh, quotes and tastings by the by the Bordeaux brokers, and what they have done during those fort, during this fortnight, it is they uh, just uh, have taken all those uh, notes they had, they have piled them, and from that they issued this classification. Mm -hmm. So, uh, what is the connection between uh, this event, the classification, and the imprimeur market? Did they evolve together or separately? Oh, classification is one thing. What is interesting in the classification, it's a revolution, because it's the first time uh, people thought of uh, making an official uh, classification of agricultural products. It was the first time ever. And mm. you must remember, this is 170 years ago. This is mid-19th century, and we are on the 21st century. So you must imagine that the guys who've had that idea, they were really uh, so today fully in advance. Today it would be a gold medal, silver medal, something to I don't know what it would or? be, because they invented it. So somebody's going to invent something new. Yeah. And uh, you have to have the this view. Uh, for the future and uh, also it shows the, uh, this classification was well done because it has been done and it has, it has been it has proved that it was well done so because in fact you know classification are the picture of the past but not of the future you cannot make a classification of the future so in fact it shows the classification shows one thing the potential possible of the estates. And of course, what makes the classification every year is the success of the wine and the demand. 
demand on the wine leads to to its rank, ranking of the day. You may today you have some uh, second or third growth that would be selling like fifth growth. You have some fifth growth selling like uh, uh, second growth, etc. You have all that melts. Because it's also very human, because wine is human, it's making by men and women. So men and women have their days, they have their years, they have their problems, they are ill, they're in good shape, they are, uh, they get a fighting spirit that day or not. So the wines reflect the owners and the winemaker. Yeah. And... Uh Does the classification and the entrepreneur market, is it a 100% overlap or are wineries part of the entrepreneur that are not part of the classification? Of course, no. I mean, the, the uh, future business or the entrepreneur business uh, is a way of selling. There's, it's, uh, you don't have to be classified to be, uh, to be uh, selling en primeur. For example, there is no classification in, in Pomerol and they're selling en primeur. So, uh, it's a way of dealing. Of course, the uh, classified growth, they have uh, that, uh, that view, that projection since 1855, they are setting the fashion. They are setting the market. They're, they are leading and showing the way. And uh, being those um, leaders, they, uh, they set the way. What criteria were the decision based on? So we have, you said, uh, uh, tasting notes. Is it also an economic decision uh, who was part of this uh, group of the Cru Classé? What? Um, who, the, the wineries who, who could uh, take part in this uh, I mean it must have been some more who dropped out and who did not become so what were the criteria for being what classified yes in 1855 yes they were classified on based on uh, on those uh, not, not, notice from or notes from the from the brokers it's the brokers who did the, the, the classification it's not the it's not the estates so it was not uh, like they have to be of a certain age they have to produce a certain number or sell a certain amount yeah. or it was the best selling wines over the hundred last hundred hundred uh, years let's say to me to be uh, to be to make it uh, easy to understand okay the best 60 red wines and the best 25 white wines sweet that were selling best Uh, over the last hundred years, from 1750 to 1850. Do you think that um, this Cru Classé is st still representative for the majority of Bordeaux? Because I have been talking to many winemakers and they report, for example, the demand for single grape wines, just a Merlot, just a Cabernet Sauvignon, and many adapt. And uh, so uh, the people who sell variety, they do not sell brand. The Classé market, I think, sells brand and not variety. So there's a there's a gap opening between uh, the Classé market and the... It's a, no, it's a, I think it's two different things that you're speaking of. Uh, There's certainly a market for grape varietals. It's no problem, but um, the um, the style of the wines. Uh, but you, there again, you're you're more or less wrong because if you take Pomerol, which is uh, between 90% and 100% in Merlot, so it means that, and you have very famous labels there, so it means that it has nothing to do with the grapes. And uh, the argument that uh, you are giving is uh, no good to my. To, to me anyway uh, the uh, uh, it is it is uh, for the moment we know that for our kind of wine uh, the best is to uh, blend uh, the uh, grape varietals that have been selected and to uh, and to blend according to the year to the vintage 
the aim is to make the best wine possible. And uh, and uh, the the result of the answer is that uh, there is a demand for these wines. If if the trend was to do other type of wines, they won't be selling. Mm. But they are selling. I, I ask this question because um, I try to understand the image Bordeaux has created mm. all around the world. And uh, I mean, there's when you when you talk to people who have not much connection to wine, they know okay, Bordeaux it is red and it is quite heavy red wines. And then many people say, yeah, I know Bordeaux, but I cannot afford it. So this is the next step. And then you come to Bordeaux and you find, oh no, Bordeaux is Medoc, is Saint-Emilion, is Entre-de-Mer, is white, is red, is uh, sweet, is dry, is uh, so so many different things uh, that are not part of the image Bordeaux has abroad. Easily speaking, mm. if you if you deal with people who know a lot about wine, they see it more sophisticated. So um, it's like if you would say, uh, uh, "I cannot buy uh, French fashion because uh, it's all Christian Dior," uh, so it doesn't doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, sure, but uh, image is image. So uh, Bordeaux has a large spectrum of wines. Uh, maybe we are not good at uh, making it uh, known by everybody, uh, making well known that we have wines from uh, from five euro to uh, wine of one uh, thousand euro. But uh, this is because we 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 don't do well our job. <laughs> I think you do very well. So, but the the thing is certainly uh, it's like uh, everywhere the train, you know. Uh, 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 it's like if you say, uh, well, uh, I know German cars, but uh, uh, they are all very, very expensive. But, uh, uh, I mean, people don't know Volkswagen or uh, Opel or so on. So, yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh, it has different layers, definitely. And... Uh, All German cars are not Maybach. And not all German brands are German anymore. So, yeah, uh, I, I get this. Um, I'm, what, what I'm curious about is uh, how the image that Bordeaux has, and it's a very, very stable image, how it um, matches or mismatches the reality of the Bordeaux wine business today. This is this has made me quite curious. Uh, so, for example, I, I talked to some persons who uh, work uh, in uh, negotiation companies, and they said, um, for example, we barely sell bottles because they are sustainable. Yet everybody tells we have to go organic in Bordeaux and we have to stop using herbicides. But uh, when it comes to a certain price per bottle, we only sell brand. And so this this differs a lot. What I see and what I hear, actually, there's a difference. And uh, I try to to target this from from uh, different perspectives to understand more about uh, the reality of the wine business in Bordeaux. This is why I'm asking these questions. And um, another thing that that I'm really interested in, because I do not really quite understand it, is the um, the relationship between wine producers and negotiants. Uh, at first, it looked to me like a sort of dependency, like the negotiant can decide the wine, uh, the price, and the wine producer has to sell. Then I learned, no, it's not like this. It's it's a rather, it's, it's a back and forth play, uh, depending on the harvest. This was the next thing that was explained to me, and so uh, now I'm 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 sitting here uh, with this, uh, let's say, dangerous half knowledge, and uh, I try to understand how how this whole thing works. Maybe you can. Well, it's a commodity market. It's demand and offer. And after a commodity market, you know, it's a market where uh, for uh, wine or uh, or uh, wheat or whatever, there are prices. 
depending on the quality, depending on the number of things. For wheat, it's a matter of uh, humidity, of uh, type of wheat, where it comes from, and so on. The way it is uh, cultivated. For, for wine, it's exactly the same for Bordeaux wines. Depending on how you, if you are uh, bio or not, if you are, uh, uh, if you have color or not, if your, uh, if your uh, uh, alcohol content is uh, twelve or fourteen, uh, if you are very soft and round and so on. So, uh, it's but it's like a commodity. Mm-hmm. And is the demand for uh, fine, wine, fine wines, for uh, class- classified wines, is this more? Is there more fluctuation in the market than in general Bordeaux market? For, for I was speaking of general market, yeah, Bordeaux market. Okay. If you speak of uh, the uh, the uh, the classified growth, for classified growth, it's a matter of offer and demand. Quality, of course, of the vintage and offer and demand, pure. So is there, when, for example, you have a vintage that is not like the vintage of the of 100 years, the best vintage, uh, is there a problem in selling those fine wines or is it just... In general, no. No. It takes longer. Because, in fact, uh, even if it's not a top quality, top vintage, there is a... Uh, the, the qualities today that are sold by the estate are of such a level yes. that even when it is uh, uh, not top, top vintage, it's very decent wine, very good wine that you can that you can buy, and where you will have pleasure. I mean, a today a classified growth cannot put uh, rubbish on the on the market because. Uh, the market is going to have a very bad answer to it. So it's uh, it will be uh, negative for the estate. Mm. So uh, I think when I when I studied wine business, uh, there was one vintage where I think Chateau de Chem did not produce a first yeah. wine, for example. Of course. If you, if you think that you are not going to make uh, a decent wine, You don't put it on the market, period. Yeah, I think that makes sense in terms of protect, protecting your brand. Um, I'm so sorry, but I'm going to be able to have to leave you. <laughs> you do you have still a lot of questions? Uh, just, uh, let's say... Two more. Okay. Um, the this uh, the system of uh, Cotier and Negociants, uh, why does it exist in Bordeaux and not... Uh, in the other parts? There, there are in Bordeaux uh, eight, uh, eight to ten thousand uh, growers. For a shipping firm, for a wine merchant, the buyer, we should, we should have uh, uh, 10, or 20, 10 or 15 buyers who will go around and around to find all the, all the crop, all the, all the growers to have the samples. And so start. it's an organizational so it's much cheaper, uh-huh. okay. yeah, much sure. cheaper to have guys who are, who, it's their job. But you have other areas where you have the same for grain. You have uh, brokers for grain. You have brokers for also in the south of France also. It exists also in Spain. I don't know in Germany, but. Okay. So uh, then uh, to be respectful of your time, I will end with two uh, short personal questions. So uh, who are the people who influ- influenced you in your career the most? Who are the people who are influencing me and, and my career? I'm too old to have my career influenced. No, but, may, no, but no, <laughs> you, maybe you had mentors in your youth or people who taught you about uh, the wine industry. Yeah, no, uh, I've always been uh, very much uh, trying to hear the market. Uh, And this has always been for me very important. The second thing which is important to me is quality. I think that... uh, 
what has always driven us and driven me is quality. Because I believe that the consumer is somebody who doesn't come back. You can fool the consumer once, but once. not twice. This is why I told you. An estate, if it's one of the top estates, cannot afford to put bad products on the market because he will be punished by the market immediately. The market is the most important thing. This drives everybody. Mm. This is the real judge. Sure. And with your experience today, what do you know about selling wine that you could have used when you were younger? What do I know about uh, how to sell wine that you could have used in your younger years? The the market are totally different today from what they were when I was young. So, I mean, it's to, it's two different worlds. I mean, today you have internet. When I was uh, when I started working. Mm -hmm. There was not even a fax. There was not even a. Uh, the, the, you, uh, you were depending on mail. You were waiting for the for the uh, for the mailbox uh, to be uh, to be fed. So I mean, there's no uh, for the mailman. So there, there was. It's a different world. Different world. Totally. Post office. When there was strike of post office. Uh, it was a, it was a catastrophe. It has been in France when I started in the business. There was a there was a very very strong uh, strike of postmen, and uh, the whole country was stopped. and And the companies had no check, no money, no nothing. It was a real disaster. Ah, so your company was strongly affected by this. Everybody, all France, the whole country was blocked. Yeah, in Germany we often talk about that the people in France, when they strike, they strike hard. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, uh, Monsieur Casteja, I thank you for your time. This, thank uh, you very much for coming. This was very interesting and uh, I hope that the people who listen uh, understand a bit more about the Emprimeur market. If you have more questions, please feel free to come. I will definitely and I hope to, uh, to enjoy the next Emprimeur campaign. It will be the first in my life. Yeah, you'll be there. I hope so, yes. Okay, so you'll come and see me. For sure. Thank and you very much. Thank you for having me and thank you thank for answering. Vielen Dank und bis nächstes Mal, ja? Au revoir. Oh boy, I think this was one of the toughest interviews in my whole life. I've never been so nervous. Uh, I think I had to restart the whole interview two or three times because... I I got the name of Mr. Monsieur uh, Casteja so wrong. Uh, I knew this was going to happen. I, I <laughs> remembered it as a kind of Spanish pronunciation, Casteja, and I couldn't get it out of my mind and I totally screwed up several times. So this was <laughs> horrible for me. I, I tried to die uh, during the interview. Uh, but yeah, nonetheless, uh, I, I uh, did it. <laughs> I finished it. And I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I for sure enjoyed it in the end as well. And so thanks for listening.